So, two tracks. One is, yeah, you do have to know your essence. And, you know, when you're, if your essence is you're aggressive and you don't take no for an answer, that can also be your Achilles heel. That can turn that. people off. Almost everybody's strength is their Achilles heel. If you're overly charming and you can charm the pants off of anybody, you're probably not going to work as hard as you should. You're going to fall back on that. So you have to understand the two sides, the Janus of the, of the, of the two sides of the coin of, of that power. The second thing I think you have to identify, and I talk about this quite a bit, I don't think I'm writing about it right now in the new book, but new books I've been writing for so long, I'm not sure what's in it. I review it tomorrow on the fireplace. Because it's cold here at Temecula. <laughs> um, is you have to know what home is for you. Heroes are an inspiring group of people, every one of them from the larger-than-life comic book heroes you see on the big silver screen, the everyday heroes that let us live the privileged lives we do. Every hero has a story to tell, from the doctor saving lives at your local hospital, to the war veteran down the street who risked his life for our freedom, to the police officers and the firefighters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Every hero is special and every story worth telling. But there is one class of heroes that I think is often ignored. The entrepreneur, the creator, the producer, the ones who look at the problems in this world and think to themselves, you know what, I can fix that, I can help people, I can make a difference. Then they go out and do exactly that by creating a new product or introducing a new service. Some go on to change the world. Others make a world of difference to their customers. Welcome to The Hero Show. Join us as we pull back the masks on the world's finest heropreneurs and learn the secrets to their powers, their success, and their influence. So you can use those secrets to attract more sales, make more money, and experience more freedom in your business. I'm your host, Richard Matthews, and we are on in three, two, one. Hello, oh, welcome back to the Hero Show. My name is Richard Matthews, and today I have the pleasure of having Joe Caruso on the line. Joe, are you there? I'm right here, Richard. Nice to talk to you. Awesome to have you here. So we were talking before we got on the interview here. So you're up in uh, in on the lakes up in uh, near Lake Erie. Is that right? Yeah, in Michigan. I'm in, I live on an island between Michigan and Canada. So does Lake Erie like freeze over this time of year? Yeah, funny. It's like it was zero last night. I see water flowing, but I also see a lot of ice floats. So not completely over on this side, because this side has a current, but on the other side towards Canada, there's a lot of ice shanties. So does, is your island uh, landlocked or do you have a bridge? Two bridges. So you can still get back over if you need to when it's frozen? Yeah, it's a half a mile. Okay, that works out. Yeah, um, it's I, easy. I'm a Southern California baby, um, so my blood freezes at about 65 degrees. Um, Mine does too. Why am I here? But I travel. I cheat there, <laughs> camp and leave. Do like you guys. You travel all the time. Yeah, we travel all the time. We try to get to warm places, but I decided to come visit my dad this winter, and he's up near Yosemite, so it, it's like, I think it's oh. cold. It's like 50 degrees. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> we're, in Southern, we're in Southern California. Are you from, Richard? Um, I'm from uh, Temecula, which is the, uh, the the Southern wine country, if you've ever been there. I spoke there once. I believe there was an Indian uh, casino there. Yeah, Pachanga. Yes, yes, I remember. It was a big convention. Um, I can't remember who it was for, but uh, Tomecula. Never heard of it. That's how I can remember it. It's the only time <laughs> I heard the word. Never heard of it. I've been there. I've been there. Um, so what I want to do real quick before we get too far into this is just a brief introduction. So Joe, um, he mentioned ahead of time he wanted you all to know he's big and strong with long flowing hair. Um, which they can't see me perfect. 
<laughs> they can't see you perfect um so it'll be the podcast listeners that only get that joke if they watch the youtube version um but you are a best-selling author in six languages and you've run a, a multi-million dollar consulting firm um for a long time and you said you've been studying five hours a day um five days a week since you were 18 years old and were diagnosed with an incurable cancer um, you've been on PBS, had a PBS special. Um, and what I want you to start off with here in this interview is why don't you tell us what it is you're known for, right? You know, what is your business? Who do you serve? What do you do for them? My long falling hair, Richard, and thank you for that. You're now my favorite host um, <laughs> as I go bald for the third time in my life. Um, I'm known as an expert in the mind. I've studied and trained under psychoanalytic I've never been analyzed, but under all my, I've had many world famous psychoanalytic friends. I've been to the conventions for twice a year, three times a year, four times a year, been in study groups. I'm asked, I've actually written with them. They're in journals that are in the Library of Congress. I'm in last of 35 books that my friend who just passed away at 95 wrote. Um, lucky enough to be on the cover. Um, but basically, I talk to individuals about a very simple concept. All meaning happens in the mind. All meaning, how you define Perception it, is reality. Perception is reality based on how you perceive yourself. So the foundational context of understanding what a deer is which here on this little island can be a pest because to a gardener, very expensive pest. It can be venison to a hunter or a chef, or it can be the most deadly animal known to man because in the rural roads, deer kill people driving cars at night. But if you're a driver, it means one thing. And if you're a gardener, it means another. If you're an animal lover, it's Bambi. And so everything in the world starts with how you define yourself. That is the foundational context for how you define other things. Why is that important? Because life is about this sequence. Meaning, behavior, outcome. Meaning, behavior, outcome. How you define, you will behave to. If you think that person's an animal or a jerk or a, you know, benevolent or a kind or however you define them, you'll behave to that. Even if you say they're a jerk and I don't like them, but I'm not going to show it. You already have. That's yeah. 72,000 images a minute. And whether they're sharp enough to pick up on it, that's different. But you've already shown it. So I don't change people's behavior. I don't have a, hey, do this and this will happen recipe. Um, I, I cook. I, I have world famous chef friends I've cooked with, next to. I've been very lucky. And they always critique my knife skills. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it's always fun to have fun. And I still don't use recipes. Um, and chefs, when they share things, they share recipes with the public through the book. But you don't need to share the recipe with another chef if he says, 
Ooh, okay. Here's what I got in my mouth. Here's what I think. Tell me about the technique. And then the chef will share the technique. Impossible to ingredients or some timing on the ingredients, like add this last. But a chef doesn't share a recipe with another chef. It's just, you don't need to. They have enough chops. So I work with people that already have chops. They're successful, they're driven, they're ambitious. They know how to make money. They just don't know how to hit, get to where they want to from where they are. And the best definition of a problem I've ever read is a problem is the distance between where you are or what is and what should be in your mind. And the distance between that can only be traversed if you first look at what, where your mind might be in the way. One last thing I'll share. This is in my book coming up called Quintessential Leadership. It's not out yet. Um, people could become members of the, uh, it's free. It's free. I try to give as much as away as I can free. Of CarusoLeadership.com can find out when it's coming out. Um, I don't know what the PR company's uh, plans are to release it, but once we decide a problem, we've already determined all the solutions to that problem, potential solutions that our mind can't consider. Just by the way, we defined that problem, which again is based on the way how we define ourselves. So I help people get out of their own way, explore what else this could mean, what else could they do, and find the shortest, fastest, easiest, quickest way to get to not always simple. <laughs> so how do you how do you generally go about delivering that for your clients? Is that one on one, or do you do group coaching, or is it books on from stage? Like, what is your your sort of modus operandi, I guess, of how you work with people most of the time? Oh, oh, it's a good question. Um, I talk with every client once a week for an hour. Pre-COVID, I would visit with the clients for three, four days, five days um, a year. And I, I'm a traveler like you, so I just tie into my travels. Uh, and if they live in like uh, a place that I don't want to visit, I just say, let's go somewhere together. <laughs> uh, and they do. Um, so once a week for an hour, like right before I was on with you, I was on with a head of national sales for a billion dollar company talking about the keynote she has to deliver for the annual sales meeting next Monday and helped her frame how to write a keynote, what to say in a keynote, how to construct the keynote, and then offer ideas. Oh, it's, it's almost written, basically. Just kind of handed it to them. But sometimes it's about their spouse or their partners or their lovers or their friends or their families or their mothers. A couple of other things last week. And uh, life, children. I had one client recently who was kind of kidnapped in a foreign country and we had to extricate her somehow 
Um, boy, that was touchy. It was a cult. So the daughter didn't want to leave. Um, so this, there's no syllabus. It's whatever's going on in your life and your mind, you're working your mind on. That's what I want to hear. And my first question, as you'll see on the website, how is your mind today? Most people don't think about their mind. They figure their mind's there every day. Just yeah. like a healthy person thinks their body's there every day. But I've worked with professional golfers. They hate that term. Professional golf players who know that what's the old stupid saying? 50% of the fifty percent of the game is 90% mental. And so the, I get on the cart with them. And I can't tell them how to hold a club. I don't even know how to hold a club. But I can help them improve their game by helping them with how their mind approaches the game when they have a bad hole, when the next hole after a bad hole follows, or when they have a great hole. And every professional person I've ever worked with, I say, there are some days if there's a dog leg to the right with a bunch of tall trees and you can't see the hole, a dog leg would be, you could see the green and then it makes a abrupt turn to the right. And so the pin is hidden and it's past those trees. Some days they know they have the physical acuity, my, uh, you know, muscle coordination and so on. They could top the tree and, and save a stroke on this hole. Other days they know it's risky. They're not sure they have it physically. They assess themselves physically as athletes. Very few people assess their mind, but I guarantee you, Richard, there are some days you shouldn't make big decisions. And there are other days you should make bold decisions. And there are other days you should make consistent decisions. And some days you should be focusing on execution. And other days you should be focusing on creativity. And to know which those yeah. days are and how your mind is requires someone who knows minds and doesn't judge and does in a trusting atmosphere say, here's what's going on. So since you help people sort of judge and work with their own minds and how they perceive the world and you know act accordingly, what I want to find out is how did you get into that line of work, right? We talk on this show, you know, every good comic book hero has an origin story, right? Something that made them into the hero they are today. Um, and I want to hear that story. Were you, you know, were you born a hero? Were you uh, bit by a radioactive spider that made you want to get into uh, working with people's minds? Where did how you start in the heck did job? you know that one? Or <laughs> uh, did you start in a job and eventually move over to starting your own um, consulting yeah. uh, career? Yeah, my my uh, origin story on on that is uh, unique. Now, some people say somewhat unique, and pretty unique, or kind of unique. Unique is unique. Um, I'm one of the first people ever cured from metastatic testicular cancer in the history of the world. So I was told at 18 years old I was going to die, and there was nothing they could do. And in fact. If I went into the experimental chemosurgical protocol, they would kill me probably before the cancer. But I went into it hoping my focus was that's how they find cures. Guys like me, it's a rare male disease. Yeah. For young men. 
if for every guy like me that doesn't go into it and just says, screw it, I'm dead, screw everybody, uh, you're putting off the cure. I'm, I'm the ideal lab rat. I didn't think I'd be cured. I believed them. I actually planned my funeral with my parents. And then son of a bitch, I lived. But the promise I made in the middle of that was, why live if you're going to die? I've always started studying philosophy when I was a young man. Why live if you're going to die? What difference does it make? Go into nihilism. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. You can't build a skill set. I'm 18 years old. If with cancer, I could do an iron cross on the rings in gymnastics class. I had four scholarships to college. Gone. Just like that. Gone. So now how do I how do I contextualize who I'm supposed to be in the short time that I have, which is gonna be very short, fast growing cancer, very fast. Not not uh, not like a slow cancer, but maybe yeah. prostate or something. And I uh, I decided to study five hours a day, five days a week to learn about what I was gonna miss. I don't have a lifetime to learn, a lifetime's worth of lessons. So I started reading the greatest minds that ever, uh, ever wrote about the subject from psychology to psychoanalysis to, I started with Will Durant, philosophy. And uh, he wrote a book called The Story of Philosophy, where he tracks all the great philosophers from, and the lines of thinking from Aristotle up through, I don't know, it goes beyond Bacon, I know for sure. Because um, I wanted to see who are we, why are we here, what do we do, what are we supposed to do? And I love to study and I love school, I love books. So it was perfect for me. Plus I couldn't do anything else. The, the, the chemo broke me down to the point where I could sometimes not lift my head off the pillow. It was, it was I had to sign a, document Richard that said we can kill you is that okay and I just signed yes that's terrifying uh I just thought it's part of the process and and uh the terrifying part was already done when they said you're dead we can't help you sorry but you can help us so I'm one of the first people ever cured. I've spoken to 10,000 oncology nurses in Las Vegas, Nevada, and told that story. And they laughed when I told the story because it's curable today based on guys like me that went into that program. And they giggled through the story. It's the only audience that's ever giggled through the story because they're so happy. And I, I realized at the end of that speech, by the way, this is an aside, but I'm assuming your listeners can handle an aside once in a while instead of absolutely. Okay. Uh, I was speaking in Hershey, Pennsylvania once. Folks, if you have to do it once, is plenty. And but I was talking to a, a technology conference for educators. And my phone rings the next day. I'm trying to get back because there's gonna be a snowstorm. You people from Temecula don't understand that those can stop you in your tracks. Nope. So we're trying to escape this. I'm joking. You try. We we avoid snow at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> My cell phone rings. I'm at the airport. We're waiting to get on this plane, trying to get back home before the storm comes in. 
And I've always encouraged audiences, leave your cell phone on. You know, they always tell you when you're an audience back before COVID, turn your cell phones off, leave it on. If I say something stupid, record it. If I say something great, share it. And, and uh, it's my job not to say something stupid. So phone rings, this lady calls, she goes, I run an international congress for chemotherapy nurses. Somebody was listening to you yesterday at a technology conference for uh, educators statewide. And they said, you have to hire this guy for your keynote. She says, but I heard you're expensive. I said, my marketing plan is working perfectly. And she, nice. <laughs> and she laughed. And she said, but you talked about your oncology nurse, Jeannie. Now, this video is available on the website, too, when I talk about Jeannie. Actually, that it's at that conference, if I remember. I don't go on my website, but if I remember, that's the video. And she said, so will you speak? And I said, can you pay my fee? I don't let clients determine my fee. Otherwise, I'd be broke. I determine my fee, and then I earn it, and then I guarantee it. And if I don't deliver, I can be fired any minute of any day by any client. And I've been selling clients for 20 years, one hour a day on the phone. And she says, one more question. She says, yeah, we got that. One more question. I said, what? She says, well, we want you to be the opening keynote. But can you get your nurse Jeannie to be there? And this is like 15 years after, you know, the whole event, which took two years. And I said, I'll give you her contact information, but I don't speak for Jeannie. So she's in the front row. We had dinner the night before. It was really fun. Carol, my wife, Carol, knows Jeannie. And she's a sweetheart. So she's there and uh, she's in the front row. And this is her people. I mean, <laughs> these are her people. This is her conference. I'm closing a speech talking about how she helped save my life. And I realized I didn't have an ending to my speech. Now you want to talk in front of 10,000 people and at the end of your speech realize you don't have an appropriate ending. And so I paused and I said, ladies and gentlemen, Jeannie, please so crazy. Everybody stood up. She came up, gave me a big hug, got her applause. I was talking about them the whole time. I wasn't talking about me. And that's why they were laughing. And I was celebrating one of them. Life's not about you. Life's about what you do with it for other people. And then the value comes after that. So we signed autographs, longest I've ever signed autographs. They waited in line for two and a half hours. And uh, my book, The Power of Losing Control, had come out. And Jeannie stood there with us. And she goes, I've never seen anything like this. And I said, I haven't either. It was just so real. And Carol was standing next to me and Jeannie's standing next to me and everybody looked at Jeannie and then asked, so did you marry Jeannie? I said, this is my wife, Carol. This is our friend. 
so they concocted their own story in the story that I had told. You want, whether you're marketing a product, a service, people have to find yourself, themselves, in your story. If you're marketing or your approach to your employees or your approach to your audience leaves them out of your marketing message, missed. It's got to be about them. But you still have to tell an authentic story. And if it's not authentic, it's got to sound authentic. And God bless anybody who wants to sound authentic. Don't call me. I'm, I'm not interested. So you, at 18, were diagnosed with an incurable cancer. Yes. They cured you. How long did that take? Two years. Two I was years. in the hospital most of the time. I was pretty sick. There were times I was puking about, I don't know if you could say puking, but, you know. Two, two years to be to be cured of the first person to be cured of an incurable cancer. How long oh, from that, there? Of that one. Of that one. Did you get another one? No, no, no. But I mean, of that, there have been many incurable cancers that are curable today. Yeah. Yeah. I was the first of that. Yeah. So how long, how long from there before you started your own, started your consulting practice that you run today? You ask good questions. I hate you. I like softball questions. <laughs> uh, uh, another part of the process. So I'm going to assume you have smart listeners and they're engaged. So I had to decide. They never told me I was cured because they weren't legally, medically allowed to say that with any sense of responsibility. What they said was, we can't do anything else for you. Your, can't, your chemo has a half-life of 200 years. You've taken the limit that any human being has lived through. Everybody on my floor in University of Michigan Hospital died from the chemo. And uh, like I said, I was in good shape. That probably helped a lot. So then they just said, well, I, I said, well, do I come back here every week? And they said, we can't do anything for you. We're cancer specialists. I said, what if I get a cold? They said, go see a doctor. So I haven't seen a regular doctor in two years. I come to you guys for everything. There's nothing else we could do. But am I cured? No. It took another couple of years to figure out that I should focus on my future. And so I developed a mission statement, which in the old days was called, in those days, called a mission statement. So we're in 1978, 79, 80 at this point. And I said, why live? And I, de I determined it was to develop my skills. I believe we're all unique. I believe that when uh, Richard Matthews leaves this world, there will not be a Richard Matthews replacement, even in his own toddler son. There will be a different human being who has legacies in teachings and influence of Richard Matthews in his mind contextually, but has to be express himself individually and find out which path he's supposed to go down and cut his way through the path and explore it. So I said to develop myself to the best of my abilities. And I added this because of all the people that were there for me when I had cancer, watching me 
show up and lose my hair. And it was down to a hundred and just a little over a hundred pounds. Uh, the worst point. Um, I said to help other people. And that became a mission statement. So I kept my stupid promise. I didn't know I'd have to keep it for as long as I've lived, but I've kept it. I study five hours a day, five days a week, sometimes more. I bring my mind to different people every day in a unique manner to help them and talk about them in the context of them. I don't say, you know what you got to do here? I don't say, you know what I did that would work for you? I listen. And I bring my experience to them the way I brought my story to those chemo nurses. They found themselves in the story. A good writer helps you find yourself in the story. You can read The Old Man in the Sea and never have fished for a marlin that size. But if it's a good writer like Hemingway was, your hands are bleeding from the line. You can feel it. You can see after you catch the fish, the shark come up on the side and take a bite out. And you can feel the disappointment that you almost lost your life for this record size, by the way, mythologically sized fish. There is no better fish that size in reality. You believe it when you read the book. And you could feel the heartbreak of that. And then you could get in a storm or not find your way home, collapse. Because that's the hero's journey. Written by Joseph Campbell, actually. But it's one of, as Kurt Vonnegut says, one of the seven storyline arcs. And this is another thing I encourage people. Have moral authority, damn it. Don't just read a freaking self-help book and then teach it to somebody else. But have moral authority. Truly understand that which you know. Question it. Examine it. Turn it inside out. Understand it. Study it. The other day, um, um, what was the subject? Oh, I write these cup of joes. Those are free. So a daily cup of joe comes out, and it's just a pithy little sentence, but it stimulates your mind in the morning. A little coffee might stimulate your neurological system in the morning. And the members get them free. They just come in the email, no bombardment, no ads. Here. Learn to cherish the chase as much as you tre treasure the trophy. Pithy, not too simple, something to think about. Good way to start my day, thinking about thinking. I always think about thinking. And I also have a word of the week. And the word of the week, I remember, because I write them like three or four weeks ahead, was, uh, and by the way, they're harder to write than a book of the space on the table, much harder. Um, and I was thinking, I've been working with a term with my clients for years called conflation. I think first either coined or used in popular zeitgeist by Freud. So I said, that's a good word. Now, conflation means uh, when you 
let's say you're a traveler. Let's say you thought you were in Connecticut, but you were in Rhode Island, but you've been to so many places. Yes, you've done this. That you've been to so many places that I can see by the beautiful grin on your face that that uh, just for a second, it's like, was it Connecticut? And then you turn to your spouse or your lover or your partner or your kids or whatever. Was it and, and, and then they go, um, no. That's conflation. You conflated two cities. It's, it's, the, it's caused by a combination of confusion and re-remembrance. Well, I remember reading about it in a book written by Freud called The uh, Pathology of Everyday Life, written in 19, 1898. And so as I'm sitting in my computer here in the office, and I've got a dozen bookshelves in my home, but I have one in my office. You can see it behind me, but uh, I got to put my finger exactly on the hundreds of books that I own. Oh, that book didn't take me two seconds. Open to, I love to say, this would be a better story. Opened exactly to the right page. I was one page off. In red, the first time I'd read about conflation and I'd not read that book for 25 years. So I realized in the last 10 years or so, one of my strengths is I have a great mind. I've never taken a note when I talk to a client, but I can tell them what we talked about 10 years ago. So what are your strengths? What are your core strengths? No. And then how do you want to direct them based on your purpose in life? And then how do you monitor, if you're an entrepreneur, which your audience seems to be, how do you understand that in a way that they, they can monetize it, but get the hell, see, I corrected that, get the hell out of your own way by understanding your mind further. And I believe in mentorship. So that, that's the longest answer I've ever given to a great question, but I figured the question needed, uh, it required that level of um, diligence and introspection so after you have started this obviously you've been doing this for a long time now and you said you've you've developed some of your your own skills um and your mind being one of them i'm going to talk a little bit more about that um about your superpowers right and we talk on this show every hero has a superpower whether that's their fancy flying suit made by their genius intellect or you know super strength or the ability to call down thunder from the sky in the real world, heroes have what I call a zone of genius, right? Which is either a skill or a set of skills that you were born with or you developed over the course of time that allow you to help your people slay their villains and come out on top in their journeys, right? Um, and the way I like to frame this for people is if you look at all the skills that you've developed, there's probably a common thread that ties all of those skills together. And that common thread is really where your superpower is. So with that sort of framing, what do you think your superpower is that you were either born with or you've developed over your career? Now, you talk to a guy that if you gave me a long cape and tights, first of all, I would be itching and I would trip <laughs> on the cape, but I'll go with it. Um, we could just go with, uh, with Incredibles, no capes. <laughs> you don't want to get sucked into a jet. Let's go, let's go on two tracks. Um, good question. And I can see why your listeners like you because you're asking the questions to help them. You're demonstrating what I, what I teach in my philosophy, uh, in our respective. So thank you. Uh, and you're not doing it for me. I'm thanking you because 
I appreciate the same way I'd say thank you for a nice meal. Um, You're welcome. So two tracks. One is, yeah, you do have to know your essence. And, you know, when you're, if your essence is you're aggressive and you don't take no for an answer, that can also be your Achilles heel. That can throw people off. Almost everybody's strength is their Achilles heel. If you're overly charming and you could charm the pants off of anybody, you're probably not going to work as hard as you should. You're going to fall back on that. So you have to understand the two sides, the Janus of the, of the, of the two sides of the coin of, of that power. The second thing I think you have to identify, and I talk about this quite a bit, I don't think I'm writing about it right now in the new book, but new books I've been writing for so long, I'm not sure what's in it. I review it tomorrow in front of the fireplace because it's cold here at Temecula. Um, <laughs> is you have to know what home is for you. Home for you is making sure you're there for your kids, being able to work while you travel full time, feeling like you're influencing others in a positive way and getting edified, living by an example that others look at. And if they're not impressed by it, at least go, hmm, that's interesting. Without those things, you would not be who you are. So home for me, I've got to read. Right now I'm studying the uh, autobiography of Goethe, the philosopher, German philosopher. Um, I'm also studying oh, the adages of Erasmus. I got an exciting life. I mean, who doesn't want to talk to me? Boy, uh, but that's my time you know that's what I need to do I need to cook I love to cook for my wife and for myself I love to have evenings I love to have time alone I meditate and then I concentrate every morning before I get out of bed and if it takes an hour it's the most important thing I'm going to do that day I'll do it I Love to travel. COVID has been a bitch on my psyche because I love to travel so much. And travel was sexy. You know, I, I'm flown two million miles, man. I, you know, you do it by motor coach and I do it by airplane. And put on my jacket. I've never flown without a jacket. And I sit in first class because after two mile, my, million miles in the same company's tube, that you sit in, they owe you something. And so I'm always upgrade. Um, and, and lucky enough that if a client, you know, flies me out, they know that's my lifestyle. You know, uh, if a client asks me to dinner, we're not going to Chipotle. They know. And people will treat you the way they- Chipotle's like my favorite restaurant though. Well, I'm glad <laughs> you survived their uh, issues. I was surprised I was in New York on New Year's Eve once and saw people in line at Chipotle and they had just got hit with another intestinal problem. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's hard. It's hard. It didn't take out the chain. I thought it would. It didn't. 
because it got hit twice in a very short period of time. But food's good, tasty. Um, but you have to know what home is. And music is home. I have to listen to music. I want to cook while I listen to music. I listen to everything from opera to uh, I want to be a millionaire so bad, Bruno Mars. I'm just trying to just quickly jump. I mean, it's an old song, but I'm just trying to. Run. So how do how do you think knowing what your home is impacts your ability to deliver to deliver your value to your clients? When you become bigger and bigger and bigger in life, more and more important, your role changes every day, but you have to know your role. At any point in time, an employer, a uh, uh, role model, uh, you just went from an entrepreneur to uh, one of the fastest growing companies to one of the best companies to work for to ringing the bell on Wall Street, which one of my clients just did. Um, tripling in the last two years. Uh, things change. And your roles change. And you can get busy doing. But you have to stay a strategist. You have to keep a perspective in life. Uh, even a pointillistic painter. There's a word for your audience. My or, wife does pointillism on her cakes decorating. So I know what that is. I know you do. Or if you're an a abstract painter. Um, my wife's a painter. We just she just finished a commission yesterday. Um, you got to step back from the painting and look at it. Meditation and contemplation and home allows you to then bring your best self to the moment. Bring all you are to all you do. It'll be all you need. Burrow in, you burrow in, you burrow in, and you get. We we talk about that concept on this show a lot. I call it giving yourself permission to play. And the reason I call it permission to play is because, particularly in the entrepreneur space, we have we tend to have this mentality that what we should do is work until we earn our reward, Um, and then we don't ever really have our reward defined or have success defined, so we never get there. So we just work ourselves to death. Um, and I try to tell people that what you should do instead is you should put yourself, pay yourself first, essentially, right? Put your, your health and your wellness and your, um, rest and recreation as the prerequisite to showing up and doing good work. Yes. Never live to work. Work should edify your life. In your own meaning, you're right on the money, and, and uh, that is a very, very honorable thing to teach others. Hey, look, I've always seen a candle as having money to burn, and I love candles, but it's frankly money to burn. You buy a candle and you burn it. I, I had a friend, I love plants. My wife's a gardener. We've got huge grounds, and I don't know, 10 gardens and 100 places to sit. It's Michigan. Don't be so impressed. Land here is cheap. And she has a perennial garden. And I invited my barber friend over, who's quite a practical man. And he said, his wife's going, oh, my God, this is great. Isn't this great? She's a grade school teacher. 
lovely. We lost a great teacher when she retired. And he said, hey, Joe, why don't you just roll up $10 bills and put them in the dirt? Let them decay. And I said, it's more like 20, dude. And these are prettier. But that's the difference. You know, you can get so practical about the doing in your life that in my new book I wrote, I write about uh, being healthy psychically is being a doer doing with a promise of achievement, but not to the loss of oneself. Now, do I lose my life in the life of my client every hour? No, I subjugate my life, but I bring my superhero powers and put them first. They are the subject of the discussion. That I don't know if that answered your question because um, I fell asleep about a half hour ago, so I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, so I want to I want to talk then about the the flip side of the superpower, right? So we talked a little bit about superpower being the mind and your ability to know what home is and bring yourself fully to the work that you do. The flip side of that, of course, is the fatal flaw, right? So just like every Superman has his kryptonite or Wonder Woman can't remove her bracelets of victory without going mad, you probably have that flaw or know what it is, something that you struggled with. Some of the things I struggled with in my my career, I struggled with perfectionism for a long time, where I didn't actually want to ship product because I thought I could always tweak it, make it a little bit better. I also struggled with lack of self-care, which was, um, you know, brought itself out and not having good boundaries with my clients and particularly not having good boundaries with time and letting myself work myself to death. Um, but I think more important than what the flaw is, is how have you worked to overcome it so you can continue to grow and continue to bring yourself fully to the clients that you help? Good question. And by the way, I knew those two things about you because that's my job is to observe. Um, I have told clients I'm lazy. And they say, you're lazy. You never rest. So when I sleep, I sleep. But I know I'm lazy. I want the fastest, easiest, cheapest way to get it done, whatever it is. And if, you know, if I have to cross the room to do something, I want to say, okay, is that worth even getting out of the chair to go do? I mean, I really think that. And so then I had a conversation with a client. All my clients are friends because they have to be. They have the level of trust and candor and subject matter that we discuss. And they said, you mean lazy, sit on the couch and watch reality shows? No, I don't sit on the couch. You like lazy, take a nap? I said, I've probably taken six naps in 22 years in this house. He said, then how can you say you're lazy? I said, because I know it's propensity. I know it's a proclivity. I have to guard against my proclivities of the Achilles heel. And so I'm really pretty smart. And I know that. I'm not bragging. I just have this great mind. And I need to know that so I can use it properly. And it's just like if you're charming, you actually know that. So don't abuse it. Because uh, people can be susceptible to charm. Uh, so because I know I have a tendency to want to go, 
Why does it matter? Why write a book if you don't know if anybody's going to read it? Which I have. I also know I can strike out. And I think some of the greatest hitters, home run hitters in the history of baseball, I don't like sports analogies, but everybody will get this. Except for your listeners in England. They have to kick it around first. Is, <laughs> oh, thanks for working with me on that. <laughs> That's good. I've been watching Ted Lasso, which is a soccer TV I show. I heard about this. Yeah. It was phenomenal. I just saw uh, Elvis Costello in a concert. I went to see a friend in uh, California. We drove to LA to see it. She goes, That's the star of Ted Lasso. And I said, What's a Ted Lasso? My TV's in a closet. I pull it out. It's on a kind of a thing. My wife watches it. I haven't turned a TV on in seven years because I'm lazy. I don't want to get addicted to that thing. So I think what we do is we stay ever on guard. The baseball analogy is you're a better hitter if you know you could strike out and you guard against it. And if you think you can't, then you will. Now, optimists will say, why would you even consider that you could? Because the guy that's pitching against you is as talented or more talented than you are hitting the ball. I, I like the, uh, the idea of, of laziness being a, a fatal flaw you guard against. Because I, I, I have something similar. My wife and I tease about this all the time. But uh, um, our, our kids are insanely well-behaved. It's like it's almost kind of ridiculous um, how well behaved they are because I feel like we haven't we haven't done enough work to to enjoy that. But nice to hear. that's what it's it's nice to hear. I'm out all the time dealing with other people's children. Yeah, no, my my kids are my kids are excellent, but people ask us all the time like how do like why why are you guys like why why do you have your kids so well behaved? And I'm like well because because I'm lazy, and you know and they are far easier to deal with out and about and you know but so we have four of them when we travel like life is simpler if we put the effort in up front to make them you know to help them be well-behaved citizens than if they're not if they're hellions then that's a lot more work and so like people are like why did you put on all the effort that you put into their behavior um and i was like well because because i'm lazy <laughs> I, I like i like the the work is better when they're well-behaved but that's that's just an example but yeah, that... you're, you're not stoic for the sake of stoicism. And you can tell I, I study history a lot. People can look up stoicism. You're stoic because if you're disciplined, everything's easier. I don't have to go find my socks in the morning. I have a sock drawer. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, now in my, people use the word anal. They don't realize it's Freudian anal retentive, which has nothing to do with somebody being neat or organized. You know, people are going to come over for dinner. Well, if I know what we're going to have, I know how long it will take to cook it. And that's going to be the intensive part. And then some people are going to want to help in the kitchen. So give them a job to do and set up a station for them. And then don't make the appetizer too complicated if the main meal is complicated. If the main meal is not complicated, you can focus on the appetizer. That's lazy. Yeah, if you do it, that's like, like right. I, I think the same thing with, because uh, I, I cook as well. Um, and because cool. I'm far lazier than my wife is, um, I spend a lot more time on my, you know, to use a cooking term, my mise en place than she does. 
right? I'll spend I'll spend an hour getting everything ready to go so that when I cook, it's all simple and easy, right? <laughs> like a cooking show. And the mise en place is is uh, for for the for listeners that don't cook, it's basically read the the menu if you're using a menu. Uh, get out some. I like paper prep plates and paper prep bowls because I can throw them out. And then you know, cut up your onion. Take the red pepper. Get the ginger or whatever else you're going to use. Portion it all out. Now you just cook it. And that's what chefs do. Now, yeah. the best chefs that I have, they've got somebody that does that for them, but trust me, it's done. Yeah. I've been teaching my son to do it for me. It takes longer when he does it, but. <laughs> send, him, send him over. I'd love to meet him. He could stay here. Yeah. Yeah. He's getting to be, become a, a pretty good little chef and he can take a recipe thing and do all of his own stuff. And he's got knife skills now. They're it's a little frightening to watch him do it, but he actually does have some knife skills. <laughs> you taught him about the thumb. And the fingers and the knuckles. Yeah, yeah, and, and and how to hold the knife and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, um, again, that, that just goes back to that. You know, it's it's a lazy thing, right? It's easier to take care of a kid who knows how to use a knife than a kid who doesn't and is going to be dangerous with them, right? And the the now, like I do now, the same. Now, some of your listeners could be thinking it could, it's a control thing. Um, it's not a control thing. It's a freedom thing. It's a freedom thing. You know, there's a place for people that have no freedom. I remember, I remember that song. I just wrote a document for this for the Psychoanalytic Journal recently, like a year ago maybe. But uh, written by Chris Christopherson called Me and Bobby McGee. He was a Rhodes Scholar, people don't know that. And in the line in the song, which is I think from the 70s, he says, Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. There are people that have total freedom. And there are people like us who achieve, can afford, can structure your life. People that don't have freedom have to get up in the morning, go to work, be told what to do, when they take a break. And then the farthest end away from that is no freedom, prisoners. Yeah. They've got nothing left to lose, but they aren't free. So Chris Christopherson's words aren't entirely true. But if you have a mind and you can structure and you can plan, if you could say, oh, this weekend, is it going to happen to me or am I going to happen to it? You could do that at all. Look, I know a woman, I wrote about this in my first book, Power of Losing Control. She threw Christmas parties. Everybody would wear their Christmas, I live in Michigan, Christmas sweaters, and everybody would show up and appetizers were perfect. She probably planned this thing starting in like November, right after Thanksgiving. And then they gather around the piano and somebody would play and, and you'd all be hand worked, you know, sheets of song lyrics, you know, Christmas songs. Now, some people don't like to communicate and express themselves through song. Now, historically, in many cultures, it's tradition. But some people don't like that. But she insisted that everybody sing, even the ones that didn't like it. Or the party wasn't perfect. That's a control freak. Yeah. That's not honoring the audience. 
I want my wife to be able to have a free weekend, do whatever she'd like to do. And then at the time that she likes to have dinner, have it ready. Well, that requires, I got to plan on going to the market, buying the right food, thinking about my day and how much time it would take to prepare. That's not a control freak. It's planning. Absolutely. So I want to, uh, to, to move on, shift gears a little bit and talk about your common enemy. And your common Im common enemy. So every superhero has an arch nemesis, right? It's the thing that they have to fight <laughs> against in their world. Yeah, I can, I can. <laughs> so in the world of business it takes a lot of forms, but we put it in the context of your clients, right? The people that you're helping on a regular basis. And it's a mindset or it's a flaw that you constantly have to do battle against, so to speak. So you can actually help your people get the result that they came to you for. And if you could, the moment someone, you know, gets on the phone with you for the first time, you could wave a magic wand, bop them on the head and not have to fight that common enemy. What do you think common enemy, enemy is with the work that you do? My biggest enemy is myself. My clients aren't an enemy. You know, I don't work for assholes. Can you say assholes? I don't know. NBC can beat that up. <laughs> I don't work for people that aren't intelligent and I don't work for people that aren't ambitious and I don't work for people that want to to, to not understand that famous question that Freud asked one of his clients is, where do you find yourself in this problem, Dora? Without that introspection, we're going nowhere. We don't pay out. Look, we're not a bandage dispensary. I, I, I don't know how to apply a tourniquet. I can't do surgery. I can only help them with their minds. My common enemy is probably my ego. That's, that's my biggest enemy is, oh, Joe, look how important you are. Oh, Joe, look how much fun you're having. Oops, I just thought of myself. People say, I'm going to speak to a large group. What do I do? I get so nervous. So stop thinking about yourself. Think about them. When I speak to 10,000 people or more, I get in the room after the sound check and the lights check and the mark the stage and here's where you stand and all the rest. I go to the back of the room. And I sit in four or five different seats, middle of the room, back of the room. And you start to realize they're not even, he can't see you even. They're looking at this big jumbotron screen. I don't even know if they call them that anymore. That's the old days. And that's who you are. So while I like to move a lot on stage, keeps the tomato, rotten tomatoes from hitting me. I, when you speak in front of a camera like that with a big screen like that, you can't move then the audience just gets dizzy. So when you're thinking about them, you're not thinking about you. And I think everybody's ego is their common enemy. Gandhi talked about when he can reduce his ego to zero. Well, it's impossible. But he worked very hard at it. It's an admirable goal. You know, my father used to say, shoot for the stars if you miss, uh, you may just land on the moon. Or no, shoot for the moon if you miss, you may just, may just land on a star. Your goal doesn't have to be achievable. It has to be a doer doing with a promise of completion and achievement. But if I think, I one time had an assistant and a client called and she sighed. I waited, I let her handle the business because everybody comes to me through my assistant. I don't take calls I don't know. And, and, and she sighed as she hung up the phone. 
I've said that better be the back end of a yarn because clients are never problems. We're the problem. And if clients don't have problems, we don't have a job. And if you assume that position, they will be problems. And then you won't have a job. That's the process. So I don't know if that's a, a, what you're asking me about, but I, I've never seen anybody else as an enemy. I've never seen anybody else as something that's even hard to deal with. So I was, I was more thinking a enemy that your clients have in their own head that they have to overcome, that you have to help them overcome. The way they define their problem and themselves. I, you know, it's new CEOs, people that are really aspirational, they get a good product or a good service, they're in the market at the right time, all the stars are aligned, have to learn a very simple lesson. You're not going to make yourself rich. Other people are going to make you rich. You have to make them want to make you rich because they respect you and want to work for you and believe in what we're doing and believe in in the result of what we're doing and find meaning in it. That's your new job. You already came up with the idea. You're done with that. Quit trying to be the smartest guy in the room. You got it. Well, that's a way of thinking. And so the mind is always the biggest thing. Now, the, the trick is, if you say, what's the challenge about how to deal with the biggest enemy? Well, when you're dealing with someone like me, it would be, be candid, be open, be honest, listen, understand what trust is, create that trusting relationship. I never tell anybody what they should do. I say, how can we think of this differently in a way that puts you in a more powerful position? Because I'm sensing that you're feeling challenged. I'm feeling that you're feeling fear and you're feeling victimization. An enemy, I think, insinuates that you could be a victim. This person could hurt me. I never feel that. Even if I know they can. I've had a gun to my head in West Africa, for God's sake, in a regime. I've had a gun to my head three times in my life. I didn't treat the person like an enemy. My fear could not win the moment. I'd use my goddamn brain. And when your fear is leading the moment, you're usually not using your brain. I had a client got pinned down in an airport, gunman, public fire. I'm in Hawaii. She calls up. She's incredibly stressed under a chair, an airport chair, shaking, can hardly talk. We've got 20 people there. It was a convention. She's the CEO. I saw it on TV. I knew it was happening. I forgot they were there. So my phone rings. I'm dealing with a major issue with the hotel, trying to pack and move. And I hear what's happening. And I said, I didn't say. See, they had a blackout, so they couldn't see a TV. They don't know. I know more than they do about what's going on. So, you know, lone gunman, he's still in luggage. They've got him surrounded. You guys are at the gate. It, but you all separated. And everybody's panicked. And I said, uh, get your shit together. 
you have a job to do that's bigger than you right now. You've got 20 people you're responsible for. They need you right now. First of all, you only ducked, you didn't cover. That chair is not covered, it's just duck. And I know this because I've worked with Navy SEALs on both coasts. Secondly, put your text together, a group text with the people that are there. After you find cover, tell everybody that you want them to check in at X intervals in time. You become the lead connector. Beautiful eagle just flew. Appreciate that. Second, I said, thirdly, ask everybody how their battery is. So eventually we got everybody back onto a bus. I called the assistant. I said, get a bus there, uh, get a hotel suite, and get rooms for everybody, order a shitload of pizza and you know, sodas or wine or whatever you got. Get it all in that room. They're coming. So CEO's back. Once they're on the bus, she calls me back. And I said, okay, ask anyone on the bus if they have blood sugar issues. If anyone does, ask anyone on the bus if they have a snack, we can get to that person. Now, you can't think that clearly if you're thinking about how scared you are about what an enemy can do to you. Now, I had the, you know, the benefit of being objective having warriors for clients. I've been to many change of commands in the Navy, but I wasn't under fire. And the minute I think I'm under fire, I'm fucked. I'm gonna go duck under an airport chair and not know what the hell to do or what I'm supposed to do for other people. And that's why my enemy is my ego and not being in charge but making sure my amygdala, which is the part of the stem of the brain that feels fear, overtakes my right frontal cerebral cortex, which is where I can process logical information in language. Absolutely. Once this one takes over, this one is a victim to it. And people would say, well, that's control. No, that's responsibility. So... Let's talk about the flip side of that then, right? So if the common enemy for you is ego and learning how to, you know, have that, that under control and that kind of stuff, the flip side of that is, of course, your driving force, right? So your common enemy is something you fight against. Your driving force is what you fight for, right? So just like Batman fights to save Gotham or Spider-Man fights to save, you know, New York or Google fights to index and categorize you all the information. Good, <laughs> yeah, that's what it's, it's, it's a comic book show. So, you know. No, what it's is, iconic. It's iconic. It's legitimate. It's absolutely. What is uh, what is what is it that you fight for? Living my life to the best of my ability to help other people. Now, how I fight the ego. When I was in my most dire moment, cancer. I was now in chemo. I was now in maintenance. I'm at University Hospital. I'm waiting to go back in and get a shot, knowing that this is the best I'm going to feel. And as soon as I get that other shot. I'm going to go down for three weeks and puke and get the constipation that puts me on my knees and all the side effects that come with it. Some people might recognize some of that. So a kid, I can hear, I can hear a bunch of uh, nurses giggling and laughing. Sorry, my phone wasn't off. And uh, I can't see around the corner, but all I want to do, I've got my puke bowl 
I'm, I'm just feeling sorry for myself. And I've done pretty good, but after, you know, a year and a half, I can wait out, man. So I'm down and I'm angry. And I don't like the fact that these nurses are laughing. And they pull a redhead young man on a gurney up to wait in the hallway like the rest of us to go get his chemo. And I'm pissed at the nurses for giggling. And I'm pissed at him for being charming because that's who I used to be. <laughs> and I'm not in my best. It's all, it's all anger projection. And I looked down and I could tell he was under a sheet, but I could tell he lost one leg already. Now I'm sitting there fully able-bodied. And then I remember what my father told me, Mickey. I write about him in the book. He says, No matter how bad off you think you are, don't feel sorry for yourself. Because there's somebody worse off. And he followed that with the reverse. And no matter how good you think you are, don't get cocky. Because you're going to turn the corner and somebody's going to be able to dance circles around you. Yeah. We don't, and this is an important lesson I wrote in my last, one of my letters. We don't pride ourselves to a lesson in life. We humble ourselves to our lessons. Humility is the path. Pride is one of the seven deadly sins. So I stay with ego as my answer. And that's how I deal with it. And now a quick word from our show's sponsor. Hey there, fellow podcaster. Having a weekly audio and video show on all the major online networks that builds your brand, creates fame and drives sales for your business doesn't have to be hard. I know it feels that way because you've tried managing your show internally and realize how resource intensive it can be. You felt the pain of pouring eight to 10 hours of work into just getting one hour of content published and promoted all over the place. You see the drain on your resources, but you do it anyways because you know how powerful it is. Heck, you've probably even tried some of those automated solutions and ended up with stuff that makes your brand look cheesy and cheap. That's not helping grow your business. Don't give up though. The struggle ends now. Introducing Push Button Podcasts, a done-for-you service that will help you get your show out every single week without you lifting a finger after you've pushed that stop record button. We handle everything else, uploading, editing, transcribing, writing, research, graphics, publication, and promotion, all done by real humans who know, understand, and care about your brand almost as much as you do. Empowered by our own proprietary technology, our team will let you get back to doing what you love while we handle the rest. Check us out at pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero for 10% off the lifetime of your service with us and see the power of having an audio and video podcast growing and driving micro-celebrity status and business in your niche without you having to lift more than a finger to push that stop record button. Again, that's pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero. See you there. And now, back to the Hero Show. So then I want to talk about your guiding principles. Right. So one of the things that makes heroes heroic is that they live by code. 
for instance, Batman never kills his enemies. He only ever puts them in Arkham Asylum. So as we wrap up the interview, I want to talk about the top one, maybe two principles that you use regularly in your life. Uh, maybe a principle you wish you knew when you first started out. I'm thinking. Um, well, one principle is that I've, I've always thought that if I have a funeral, which I don't know if I want a funeral, I'm going to be honest. Um, I'm not sure if, if, if there's a funeral, in, which I won't be able to decide, Richard. I won't, I won't dictate it. I'm not a control freak. But if there's a funeral I'm torn between whether or not I want no parking spaces within five miles because there's that many people there or that I don't want anyone there because life is for the living. You can't help me anywhere. But I do know this. If, if I'm laying in the coffin there are going to be people if there's a funeral and people show up. Some people are going to say, he was never as good as I thought he could be. This is a big message for you. And others will say, I can't believe all he was and all he accomplished. It's impressive. I'll leave you with this. There was a girl in high school named Denise. And she was um, typical cheerleader in a Midwest school, blonde hair, beautiful, blue eyes. And she was very pretty. I've always been attracted to more dark complected and brown eyes, but she was just so perfect, straight A's, polite. I mean, she was just an iconic 16-year-old, 17. She was probably 17. And I'm a freshman. Now, I ended up the president of my class. We had 800 and, no, 682 people in my class. It's a different era. So this is a big school. I ended up in a math class with Denise. And I asked one of my older friends who was in her class to just let her know that I kind of liked her. And he said, well, i got to be honest with you. He was my neighbor. We played ball together and so on. And he said, i got to be honest with you. She doesn't like you. She knows who you are. She just doesn't like you. <laughs> For the life of me, Richard, I'm like, what the hell can she like? I'm not mean. I'm nice. I crack jokes. I, I, could, I couldn't imagine it. Well, it could have been a status thing. You know, I'm just a poor lower class kid, um, geek, band geek with braces and a brush cut. Pretty sure that might have something to do with it. So I came home and I was really down. My father knew I was down. I'm one of four uh, boys, but he knew I was down. So I went into my bedroom and my dad came in and he said, hey, Joe, what's going on? And I said, there's this girl named Denise. And she's just the best. And I was told today by Danny, she doesn't like me. No, my dad was always very kind and very helpful. And always had the right words at the right time, which is one of the things I try to always teach in my guiding principles. 
tell the right story to the right person at the right time for the right reason in the right way. I know that was fast, but they can rewind. And Dad said this in his kindest words. Joe, get over it. Not everyone in life is going to like you. The sooner you realize that, the better off you'll be. So there's a couple guiding principles to answer your question. I like that. Not everyone's going to like you. It's true. It doesn't really matter what you're doing either. I've been, uh, um, you know, and it goes the other way too. You run into people that you're like, I just, I don't like them. I don't know why. <laughs> I explain that in my, in my Power of Losing Control book, how that happens. I can also say that, um, you know, thank you for introducing me to your audience. Um, I'm not sure if there's thousands or hundreds of thousands or 10 or to Taiwanese kids and seeing eye dog. I, I don't care. You asked me good questions. I, I opened my kimono and gave you my best answers, which is in line with how I bring myself to everybody. Uh, be fully and empathically in the moment with the other is another, as a third guiding principle. And I think we achieved that. Now, the question is, let's say there's 10,000 listeners. I'm going to guess I'm a little high on that number, but we're going to go with that because it feels good. And there are 10,000 different versions of me now out there. They still don't know me. In their foundational context to process whether I'm a good guy, a bad guy, an asshole, or a control freak, or a guy that just had a hell of a life and made the best out of it, when it was taken from him once, doesn't matter to me. I did my best I could for you to be honest and fully empathically in the moment with you. And those 10,000 impressions of me, I'm smart enough to realize they're based one at a time to a person on how they see themselves first. I'm only viewed in the context of them. I cannot control that, which is what power of losing control is about. Yeah. Don't worry remember, about the you can't control. I remember reading, uh, some thoughts from Orson Scott Card, who's an, a science fiction author. Um, and he was talking about how authors only ever write half the story. Um, a completed book is only half the story. The, the book is finished in the reader's mind. Um, and I, I would say the, the author, although he does the heavy lifting or she, writes less than half of the story because once you're into the story, it starts to write itself. And your job is to subjugate yourself to where the story is taking you if you're a good writer. So I would argue that that's an overestimation on the, on the ratio. Uh, but I agree with the principle 100%. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's the same kind of thing. The way that people know you, they, they, know, they know what they have perceived from this interview, which is, you know, it's, it's only partial. <laughs> It's just honest. It's an honest yeah. exchange. And, and there's no posing. You weren't posing. I wasn't posing. We played with each other. I, I disclosed some very, very private things. Some of the things I've told you, I'm not sure my life's ever heard. But it doesn't make any difference. If they serve the purpose, and that's what I was supposed to do, but it's not that it was a secret. It just never came up. And, and uh, what we're trying to do is help. This is what you do. You want people to reflect. And then you want to offer people like me as a resource and people like you as a resource. So they can say, I wonder if that person can help me. Well, I was very clear. If you want me to help you, here's who you have to be. And then I'll help 
I already have my charities. I already have my charity work. I'm part of my charity work. <laughs> it's a joke. But if they think that would help, they can look into the book. They can look into the free cup of Joe's. They can go on the website, crusoeleadership.com. Or they can contact my office. It's not that hard to do and have a conversation with me. But they have to qualify. And, and I'll leave you with this. One of my other guiding principles. No one's gets to treat me worse than I treat them. I'll help anybody I can help. I can't help everybody and I can't do it for free. Or I can't feed my wife and I can't travel. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap our interview. I do finish all my interviews with a simple challenge. I call it the hero's challenge. I do this to help find access to stories I might not otherwise get on my own because not everyone is out doing these podcasts like you and I do. Um, so the question is simple. Do you have someone in your life or in your network that you think has a cool entrepreneurial story? Who are they? First names are fine. And why do you think they should come share their story on our show? First person that comes to mind for you. Mikhail Haggerty. Haggerty Insurance out of Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, Steve um, Kircher. Why do you he, think they should come share their stories here? Uh, he runs a very large organization, um, including Big Sky in Montana. Um, there's just too many. I mean, right, so just, just one. We'll do. We're just looking for one one cool story um, that we can we can invite on and see if we can uh, we can get some some more stories. So we'll, we'll reach out later and see if we can get an introduction to, to Steve or, um, and see if we can get him come on the show. But in comic books, there's always the crowd of people at the end who are cheering and clapping for the acts of heroism. So analogous to that is where can people find you? Where can they light up the bat signal, so to speak, and say, hey, Joe, I'd love to get your help. I'd love to read your cup of Joe in the morning, um, or I'd love to pick up your books. And secondly, who are the people who should reach out and do that? The people I mentioned earlier that can afford me, have ambition, and are intelligent in and willing to be introspective. Secondly, and communicative. Uh, to answer the first question, the former question, team at carusoleadership.com. And make sure they mention you, and then they mention this podcast. And then my uh, assistant will say, oh, okay, so it's not a blind call. Um, and they're vetted themselves and then she'll set up a meeting with me a phone meeting and we'll talk and we'll figure out if the chemistry is there we'll figure out if they like me and like themselves when they're with me which is far more important i talked about that in my last book and um and i'll see if i think i can help them because if i don't think i can help them i'm not gonna help them. that's my job yeah I don't think I can help and I, I don't want to string them along. Absolutely. So it's team at caruso.com and thank team you so much at caruso.com. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us today. Really appreciate getting your time. Uh, Give me the final words pleasure. of wisdom for my audience before hit this uh, stop record button. Yeah, keep listening to Richard's podcast. They all like him. He's pretty good. He's a smart guy. <laughs> thank you, Joe. All right.